your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I will start at verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. First, Christ's, the firstfruits. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come. Notice the words, the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to be upon every mind present, that their perception of what I say will be received as you intend upon my tongue that I'll be cleansed that I might be your transparent instrument to convey everything you want said, nothing you don't want said. I pray that this will be a clear word, edifying to your people, perhaps change someone's life. And may it bring great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm preaching to you on the subject, the resurrection of the dead, and with particular reference to what happens at the second coming of Jesus, because at the second coming, there will be a general 
resurrection of all the dead, of every single person who ever lived in the history of the world. Now, there are a number of scriptures that teach the resurrection of the dead. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life. Is that you? Others to shame and everlasting contempt. In which category are you? John 5, 28, 29, the words of Jesus. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Is that you? And those, could this be you, who have done evil will rise to be condemned. In which category are you? And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, I just read it. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is a very important word that I'm bringing to you on this Easter Sunday. Why do you suppose it is an important word? Well, the truth or the truthfulness of Jesus' own resurrection from the dead is at stake. The truth of Jesus' resurrection and the final resurrection rise or fall together. If Jesus was not raised, neither will we be. The only hope that we have that we will be raised from the dead is if Jesus himself was raised from the dead. He's called the first fruits of them that sleep, meaning those who died in the Lord, but first fruits in this sense, even though Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and, and a widow's son at Nain, they would have died later. Jesus is the first person to be raised from the dead, never to die again. And because he lives, we shall live also. At stake also are Jesus' words to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. That was Jesus' way of saying that he could raise the dead anytime he wanted to. And he proved it by raising Lazarus from the dead. Also at stake are Old Testament prophecies that point to the resurrection of Jesus, especially Psalm 16. The words of Daniel that I just read from are at stake, but also the truth regarding the final judgment. The only way all people who ever lived will be judged, and the only evidence that you will be judged, and I wonder if you realize that, that you will stand trial 
before God and give an account of the life you've lived in that body. But the only evidence we have that you will stand trial is that if Jesus was raised from the dead. And so what happened to millions of people who have lived in the past ages? They're in their graves. They will come out according to Jesus. And so the resurrection of the dead means all men and all women will one day be raised from the dead, whatever age, if they were children, or even if they were aborted in the womb. And there are countless millions of those. They will be raised from the dead. Evil men of the past will be raised. Those who are saved will be raised. Adolf Hitler will be raised. People who got away with murder will be raised and stand trial. All evil ever done will come out into the open. You may have thought that you got away with something and nobody will ever know wrong. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, said Jesus, and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. And so this is what is at stake when I preach a message like this. And so we have it. And why I am willing to wait for something like vindication because it's going to come. Perhaps you have been falsely accused. Perhaps people think something about you that's not true. And it hurts you that in this life, people don't know what really happened. And maybe you live under a cloud. One day, your name will be cleared. And we can afford to wait because it will be a day of days. But then there's another reason I preach this message and why it is so important. The question is, why be a Christian? Have you ever asked yourself, why am I a Christian? Have you ever asked the question, why should anybody be a Christian? Suppose I passed out sheets of paper and you were to write down your best answer as to why one of your friends or loved ones, somebody who's special to you, should be a Christian. What would you say? Why do you suppose people should be Christians? Well, another reason that this is an important word, you may not be aware of this unless you read in 1 Corinthians pretty thoroughly, that there were these Christians in Corinth who struggled with the question of the resurrection of the dead. It wasn't because uh, they were so much in a godless secular age like ours is today. They had a different reason for struggling with the issue. You see, we're all influenced by our culture and a worldview, uh, the thinking of contemporary society. Well, their worldview 2,000 years ago came largely from the teaching of Plato. 
And Plato taught that the body is intrinsically wicked, that only the soul is pure. This is why some early Christians struggled with whether Jesus had really come in the flesh and that he was really a man. And by the way, you should know that it is a heresy to deny the humanity of Jesus as much as it is the deity of Jesus. But anyway, there were those who struggled with this because of the Platonic, Platonic philosophy that governed the age in some parts of the Greco-Roman world. Well now, by resurrection of the dead, I mean that the same people, all who ever lived and breathed, will be bodily raised from the dead on that last day when Jesus comes. Now, we're told in unmistakable terms that it was this same Jesus. In fact, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, was making it clear this same Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. And then as he ascended to heaven, the two angels appeared on Mount Olivet to emphasize this same Jesus would come. I don't know whether this issue has ever gripped you, but if you ever run into anybody who believes that, well, you come back in a future life a different kind of person, maybe an animal, or uh, you may not be a human being. And the idea, I think it's part of that which is known as Hindu philosophy. Uh, you don't come back as the same person. The proof that your body and your personality is the only one you will ever have is because Jesus came back in the same body. You will not have a second chance in a future life or a third or fourth. This is it. And the resurrection of Jesus is proof of that. Well, I want you to consider for a moment the contrast between what I would like to call the believer's worst nightmare and the unbeliever's fondest dream. It goes back to the inconsistent thinking of these Corinthians. Uh, they, some of them, surprising as it may seem, uh, did not believe in a resurrection of the dead, but believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, it's hard to see how anybody could have such an incongruity, uh, but it shows how inconsistent some people's thinking can be. The Christian faith should treat, teach a person how to think. And it's so silly to believe in Christ's resurrection and then not believe in someone else's. But that didn't seem to bother them. And yet, to this very day, there are some Christians who don't think through what is obvious. Well now, Paul examines their general principle. And it was this. If this general principle, that the dead will not be raised, is true, then Christ was not raised. That's what Paul is saying. That's obvious. 
So you cannot have it both ways. If the dead are not raised, neither is Christ. But if Christ was raised, then the dead will be raised. You wouldn't have thought that the Corinthians would need that simple logic, but that is what he's saying. And then Paul puts forward this proposition. And I would say the believer's worst nightmare. In other words, suppose it were possible, it isn't, but think for a moment, imagine that it were possible to prove that Jesus of Nazareth was not raised from the dead, but that his bones, his remains, are somewhere in Jerusalem today. And if that were to be proved, how would it make you feel? Well, now, there are some today, I've heard them say it, it wouldn't bother me because the Christian life is the best life to be lived. And I just want you to know that's total nonsense. It may make some people feel better, but I can tell you, this won't play with the Apostle Paul. And the truth is that if it could be proved that Jesus of Nazareth was not literally, bodily, resurrected, then, says Paul, our preaching is useless, what I'm doing right now, waste of time. Your faith is useless. Paul said, we're now called false witnesses about God since I testify that God raised Jesus. That makes me a liar, says Paul. And if the dead are not raised, Jesus was not raised. And these two issues rise or fall together. And then, says Paul, you are still in your sins and your loved ones who you thought were in heaven are lost. That would be the believer's worst nightmare. But it is at the same time the unbeliever's fondest dream. Because let's say you're an atheist or you're an agnostic, you're an unbeliever, and you intend to stay in that condition, you had better hope that Jesus was not raised from the dead. Because if he was not raised from the dead, then you can laugh at this preacher. You're saying that's all useless. And these silly people around here who believe, you want to believe that their faith is vain. It is nonsense. And you would say, I am a liar to say that Jesus was raised from the dead. And we're foolish to think that one day we will see our loved ones. You know, it's possible to forget this, that we will be reunited with our loved ones who knew the Lord. Now, you can make too much of that and forget that the main thing is that we're going to see Jesus. And never forget that. That's the main thing. But it's also true that we're going to see others in heaven, 
I look forward to seeing my mother. She died when she was only 43 years old. I was 17. My father lived a, a long life, and he died uh, since we've retired in America, and I was able to go to his funeral. But I'll see my dad, and I'll see other people. And this is a part of the Christian package. But let's talk for a moment. I would call it existential Christianity. Because at this stage, Paul poses what I could only call existential Christianity. When he says in verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. And so, if the Christian faith applies to this life only, then we ought to be pitied. And the world should laugh at us. We're a sorry lot. And there's no such thing as the judgment seat of Christ. And so, you say, I would still be a Christian. The Apostle Paul could give his testimony to let you know what Christianity has done for him. And he says, if there's only hope in this life, and that means, you know, this life only is all there is, and we're going to die. There's no life beyond the grave. We're not going to be raised from the dead. Here's Paul's testimony and what Christianity has done for him. And suppose there was no hell to shun. There's no heaven to gain. Uh, listen to the Apostle Paul. He said, here's what Christianity has done for me. He says, for one thing, he said, to this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. He said, this is what Christianity has done for me. We're homeless. We work hard with our own hands. We're cursed. We're persecuted. We're slandered. We're the scum of the earth, the refuse of this world. And in case you thought that that was just an unguarded comment by the Apostle Paul, when he writes the second letter uh, to these Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he puts it like this. He said, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. This is what Christianity has done for me, says Paul. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen. People being told about why you should be a Christian. Listen to this. In danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I've known hunger. I've gone without food. I've been cold and naked. How does that sound? Does that whet your appetite for wanting to be a Christian? Paul is saying, if in this life only, if this is all there is to it, I'm a fool. You ought to feel sorry for me. 
the first person that I baptized at Westminster Chapel a number of years ago, his name was J. Michaels. He was a Los Angeles Jew who was traveling on his way to Moscow, had a London office, and his secretary was a member of Westminster Chapel. So she invited her boss, who's a very important, world-class businessman, to come and hear me preach. And I didn't know he was there. I didn't find out this story for months. But that night I preached on the subject, there must be a heaven somewhere. And I described the slaves in Alabama when they came up with those spirituals. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. I'll fly away, old glory. I'll fly away. And somehow that Los Angeles Jew was smitten and was saved. And months later I baptized him. A year or two after that, he said to me, this is a quotation, before I was a Christian, I was a happy man. <laughs> Wasn't he complaining? He was making a statement. And so you need to know that if in this life only you have hope in Christ, there's nothing about it to make you want to be a Christian. It all rises or falls with the resurrection of Jesus. This is why if you intend to stay as you are in unbelief, you'd better hope that Jesus was not raised from the dead because that's the worst news you can hear. But says Paul, 500 people personally witnessed to the resurrected Jesus on what 120 testified to on the day of Pentecost. And it was a categorical historical fact. There wasn't even any argument that Christ has been raised from the dead. So says Paul, we're not to be pitied. We're not holding on to an existential Christianity. Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he was the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. The phrase, I repeat, Fallen asleep is a euphemism for Christians who have died. This does not mean what some today teach, that the soul sleeps, uh, that is unconscious and knows nothing. No, Paul won't have it. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. And so Jesus was not unconscious from his death at 3 o'clock Good Friday, till Easter Sunday. The first fruits of them that sleep, Jesus, he was conscious the moment he died. And so will all of us. The moment we die, we go to be with the Lord right then. Well, this is why Paul could say, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1 he says, we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed. We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven. What that means is that as soon as you die, you get a spiritual body. And that spiritual body would look just like the body you had. This is how the disciples recognized Moses 
and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. It wasn't their physical bodies, it was their spiritual bodies. So our loved ones in heaven have a recognizable spiritual body. And the wonderful thing is, the moment we die, we see the Lord. About six, seven years ago, I went to my old hometown, Ashland, Kentucky, and uh, my Aunt Ruth had been very, very ill the previous year, and uh, everybody thought she was dying. In fact, her own testimony, she told me, she said uh, they rushed her to the hospital. The expression they used there, I don't know if they use it in England or not, code blue. All the nurses, when they hear code blue, all nurses stop what they're doing, come to this one room because it means this person is dying and almost dead, maybe dead, and they do everything they can at the last minute to revive them, to keep them from dying. And that was my Aunt Ruth. Uh, my Aunt Ruth was a musician. She was the organist in our church back in Ashland. And she said to me, they said I died, and I can believe it, because she said, I never heard such beautiful music in all my life. She was a musician. She said, I can't begin to describe what it was like. Then the next thing I know, I'm looking at a monitor, and there's my cardiogram in front of me on a screen. And she said, why did they bring me back? <laughs> but that's not the end of the story. Because her theology was such that she thought unless she was living a very good, godly life at the moment she dies, which apparently she was because she went to heaven, but she was afraid now that, that she was back and living that maybe she could lose her salvation. She had no security, and I actually had to lead her, as it were, to the Lord and had her pray a prayer. I mean, she didn't need to in this case. She didn't need to, but she wanted assurance that she wouldn't miss what she had. But her theology taught her that maybe if she lost her temper and did something, you know, was not very holy, that then if she died, she'd go to hell. The wonderful thing is that we go to heaven not on the basis of how good we are, but whether our trust is firmly in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I ask, do you know for sure if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? But then I thought that today of another story. Uh, a couple that Louise and I knew back in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Oscar and Gertrude Preston. They were a lovely couple, very close friends. They had a baby who lived to about, I believe, five years old. And uh, they called him Buddy. I don't remember his Christian name, but they called him Buddy. And uh, Oscar and I went fishing a lot together. Bone fishing, fishing for grouper, fishing for snook. We were great friends. And then Arthur, uh, Oscar became very ill and taken to hospital, and he went into a coma, and unexpectedly, he came out of the coma, and his wife Gertrude was there, and said, Gertrude, 
There's Jesus. You see him. And guess who is with Jesus, Gertrude? There's Buddy. There's Buddy. And he died. What a way to go. Just a little glimpse of what God can do to give us comfort to know. You see, we will have recognizable bodies in heaven. We won't go around with a name tag. I'm R.T. Kendall, born Ashland, Kentucky, uh, 1935 to whatever date I die. No, you see, we will instinctively know. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? There weren't name tags on them. They just knew. And so we will know, oh, that's Moses. There's Paul. There's Martin Luther. There's Martin Lloyd-Jones. There's my mother. We'll know each other. And you see, God wants us to have things like this to look forward to. First fruits. That was the phrase given in the Old Testament to an arg- the first of an architect our agricultural harvest. In Israel, the first fruits were given to God. And the reason is that they were the best and the tastiest. Uh, before we came to England, I was pastor of a little church in Salem, Indiana, out in the country. And I had a little garden. Uh, and it was it's something I take great pride in. I never knew I had a green thumb. But I did. I planted corn, tomatoes, and all kinds of vegetables. And there's something about that first tomato. I'll never forget it. Waiting for it to get so big and then taking it off the vine. And the same thing with an ear of corn. When you know this is the first. The taste is indescribable. It's downhill after that. None of them taste that good. And in ancient times, Israel had to give the first fruits to God because that was the first sample of what is to come. And so Christ's resurrection is the first fruits. And so after that would be the resurrection of the dead. That's all of us. We'd be the harvest. And so Jesus was raised from the dead, never to die again. And so he put it like this. The first fruits of them that sleep, as Jesus will live forever, so too all the dead will be raised. A teaching that implicitly refutes the view that hell will be annihilation. No, all will be raised When he said, in Adam all die, that's the whole human race, in Christ shall all be made alive. It doesn't mean all will be saved. It simply means that all will be raised. Saved and lost. And so, what kind of body will we have? Well, for one thing, it'll be like Jesus' body. He had an imperishable body never able to deteriorate. And so will we have a body just like Jesus. I don't know what advantage it would be for us to have a body that would go through a closed door, but that's the kind of body Jesus had. He had an immortal body. You see, we are born with immortal souls. 
because we're made in the image of God implanted on us, but we're not born with immortal bodies. We have mortal bodies. These bodies will decay. I will die. I won't always be here to preach. But when I am raised alongside you, those that the Lord brings with him will have bodies that radiate the spirit of holiness, a body of dignity and excellence, a powerful body with powers this present body cannot be compared with. There will be a comparison between our bodies and the future bodies in that we will be recognizable. I will look much the same. I'll have a body with no pain, no need for sleep, no possibility of illness, sickness, needing a doctor. I take two kinds of medicine that I am told I have to take every day the rest of my life. But in heaven, no medicine, no possibility of disability, there'll be no temptation, no sexual lust, no possibility of sin, no possibility of being irritated or annoyed or being edgy owing to a chemical imbalance or when you're just tired and didn't get enough sleep, no possibility of grief because when you see your loved ones there, you'll never have to say goodbye again. It will be a time of perfect worship. Charles Wesley tried to imagine, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing because he felt so inadequate. Or he wrote the hymn, oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free. But we'll have that. You talk about worship. There is no way to describe the joy, the bliss, plus a capacity for depth of knowledge that we've never known here. In 2 Timothy 3, it was in my reading this morning, there'll be people ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Think about that. Ever learning. Are you one of those ever learning? It could be philosophy architecture, history, psychology, theology, ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Can anything be worse than that? You want to learn things that will do nothing for you except maybe cause others to admire you because knowledge puffs up. It will cause others to be jealous. The sad thing, ever learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. But in heaven, we'll be ever learning and able to come to truth. And all knowledge invites more knowledge and ever learning and able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And because God is infinite, we'll never know it all, but it will be a satisfying life with bodies incapable of sinning. Well, Paul makes one other point. The death of Adam and the resurrection of the dead go together. He mentioned that first parallel, how the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the final resurrection of the dead go together. So death by Adam 
in the Garden of Eden and the resurrection of Jesus Christ go together. Death came by a man, says Paul. So the resurrection of the dead comes by a man. And in case you wondered, the Garden of Eden was a place on the map, the fall of man, a date in history, and Jesus can be given a, a new nickname from this. He's the second Adam. And so the whole human race fell with the first Adam. The whole human race will be resurrected, not saved, but resurrected. It's not a reference to salvation when it says all shall be made alive. It's a reference to the raising of the dead when Jesus said, those who do good will come to the resurrection of life. Those who do evil, the resurrection to be condemned. And so, at this stage, Paul provides us with what I'd call an ordo eschatos, order of last things. First, Christ. First fruits was raised on Easter. Second, at the second coming, those who belong to him, they will be raised from the dead. Those who do not belong to him will also be raised. They will be raised to stand trial. And in Revelation chapter 20, Paul puts it like this. I saw the dead, small and great. That means famous people, unknown, standing before God. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Even the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And so every single person who has ever lived will be raised. And then said Paul, third, the end. I was so gripped by that phrase. I, I, I'd like to write a book on it. It's called The End. You know, at the end of a book, sometimes they'll just say the end, or the end of a movie, the end. It's over. And so Paul says in verse 24, then the end will come, and listen to this, when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so what a sight that will be. Here's what it's going to be like. Something like this. To get to see with your own eyes. The father congratulate the son on a job well done. A wise son makes a glad father. And what kind of son was Jesus when he will turn everything over to the father? And guess what? We'll get to see it. You weren't there when Jesus was born as Colin Dyer preached this morning. You weren't there when Jesus was crucified. You didn't get to see the resurrection or Peter preach on the day of Pentecost. You didn't get to see Jesus ascend to heaven. But when Paul talks about the end, 
we all get to witness it when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father. I want to hear Jesus say to me, I hope I get to hear this, well done. But imagine what it will be like when the Father congratulates his Son on that day and we're all there to see it. And we'll be so glad to be on the winning side to know that we're going to go to heaven and stay there, never to leave it forever and ever and ever. The question is, are you ready for that day? Are you? Do you know for sure if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And if you were to stand before God, you will. He were to ask you, he might. Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? If it doesn't come to your mind to say, because Jesus died for me. I'll tell you what you need to do right now. You need to pray this prayer. I'm going to give you the words. Don't need to say them out loud. But say them in your heart because God will look at you. He will know whether you mean it or not. Just say this. Lord Jesus Christ, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life.